There was a lot of pressure once they handed me a check and said, okay, let's see what you got. I had to work through that for a while. I had a publisher who said, I don't want you to co-write, which is very rare for Nashville. And I just couldn't bring myself to write alone. I had to co-write. So he'd walk in in a writer's room (laughs) and I would feel like I was having an affair. Like, it's not what it looks like. But I was, I was co-writing and I felt like he was just mad at me for doing that because he felt like it can water down what you do. And sometimes co-writing with people that you barely know is like dating all the wrong people and you don't get your best work. Sometimes when you write with the biggest hit writer in town, you don't get your best song because you're so aware that writer's in the room with you and maybe you trust their success a little more than your own process. Welcome, I'm your host Dino Cattaneo and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. For the next two or three weeks, we're in winter break and so we will stray a little bit from our traditional themes. I've been pretty explicit about my love for music and songwriters. so. Today, I have a special guest. She's a very good friend, a songwriter, an educator, and a podcaster. Her name is Scarlett Keys, and she's actually also a frequent co-writer with my wife, Susan, whose music you enjoy at the end of every episode. So Scarlett was a signed songwriter in Nashville, and then she evolved into one of the country's top songwriting educators. She teaches at Berklee College of Music, which is where she met Susan, and she's a very in-demand professor at songwriting camps and workshops across the country. She's also the author of a fabulous book called The Craft of Songwriting that I highly recommend if uh, you want to get into songwriting. Most importantly, though, if you're looking for a new podcast to listen to, you should check out her podcast, What's in a Song. You will hear some amazing in-depth conversation on creativity, songwriting, and music. It's really an opportunity to get an in-depth look at how the sausage is made, as they say, with some real music industry insiders. You will hear songwriters and producers that are behind number one hits and Grammys for artists that range from Lady Gaga and Dua Lipa to Buddy Guy, Faith Hill, Justin Bieber, Little Big Town, and even more. She talked to legendary publishers like Chris Dubois. Um, There are superstar session musicians like Charlie Worsham and Matt Rawlings, and so forth. So, very highly recommend it. Now, in their conversation with me, Scarlett talked about her story a little bit. She takes us behind the curtains of the Nashville writing community. And then finally, she even gives some songwriting tips. So enjoy this conversation. Scarlett, it's great to have you here for one of my special holiday episodes. You've been a good friend and a collaborator and songwriter. Susan, whose music our guests are listening regularly, they actually have heard a few of your songs at the end of the show. So. Let's give our listeners a little more of an introduction of who you are. Oh, Dino, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm I'm a fan of your show and I'm a huge fan of Susan's. So it's so funny to look back at a life and try to <laughs> give a brief description of what, what leads it all to the moment. But, you know, I grew up in a very musical household and it made sense to pursue music and it was something that I loved and wanted to go somewhere where I could really learn. And I ended up at Berkeley. I had a, a, a wonderful classical piano teacher who said, you have got to go somewhere where you can eat, breathe, and sleep music. And I went there thinking I wanted to be a singer. And I ended up eating too many brownies one night that my sister made and couldn't sleep and wrote a song. And just fell in love with writing and took a lyric writing class. And that bug just caught me and I never looked back. And anyway, I ended up leaving Berkeley and having a band and then doing the whole, I'm going to move to Nashville. Like it's, I'm the only one doing it, you know, packing my life into the trunk of my car and (laughs) coming to town. Like 30,000 other people didn't come on the same day that I arrived, but I sort of, Denial is a lovely thing for dreamers. And I just wanted to meet writers and get a publishing deal and be on the radio and do that whole thing. And I just 
it is about making connections and being in a town where you're drinking the same water as other writers. And so I just slowly started to meet people. I joined ASCAP, which is a performance rights organization. And they're the organization that tracks worldwide where your songs are being performed and they send you a check. We love them. And they have writer reps. And I went in and met with a writer rep and they opened some doors to publishers. And I eventually was a staff writer for Warner Brothers and had such a blast in the studio and recording songs and just living that songwriter dream of I'll eat crackers until I get a big cut. So it was it was fabulous. And when my deal ended... So before we go to the end of your deal, because I don't think that a lot of uh, listeners know what exactly is life like once you are a signed writer in one of the big music towns. So you get signed as a writer by a publishing house, which just to explain to our listeners means that you're writing songs and then there are people at your publishing house that are presenting your songs to artists for them to record. You know, at this stage, this company has invested in you. They've given you an advance. What's your day-to-day life? (laughs) There was a lot of pressure once they handed me a check and said, okay, let's see what you got. I had to work through that for a while. I had a publisher who said, I don't want you to co-write, which is very rare for Nashville. And I just couldn't bring myself to write alone. I had to co-write. So he'd walk in in a writer's room (laughs) And I would feel like I was having an affair. Like, it's not what it looks like. But I was. I was co-writing. And I felt like he was just mad at me for doing that because he felt like it can water down what you do. And sometimes co-writing with people that you barely know is like dating all the wrong people. And you don't get your best work. Sometimes when you write with the biggest hit writer in town, you don't get your best song because you're so aware that that writer's in the room with you and Maybe you trust their success a little more than your own process. But what it looks like is basically you get up every morning and you show up at the office. You go, you get coffee. The first day I signed my deal, I got a cup of coffee and I was ready to go down the hall into a room with a grand piano and write a song. And Paul Williams, who wrote The Rainbow Connection and on and on and on, legendary songwriter, was getting coffee. And he, I, he said, well, welcome. And I said, well, thank you. And he said, go write a hit. And I said, okay. And he said, well, aren't you going to wish me, you know, that I write a hit? And I said, well, actually didn't think you needed it, but good luck today. I hope you write a hit. It was so sweet. It was a really wonderful moment to be welcomed into that. But yeah, the day-to-day life is that you show up, you write a song, maybe from 10 to 2, you have lunch, and maybe you write again from two to five or two to six. And it can be a little fast paced, but you know you want to write as many songs as you can to increase your chances of getting a song cut. You know, and then you hand in your favorite couple of songs and your publisher listens to them and decides which one he wants to pay for for you to go in the studio. And at the time, it was wonderful to have five songs ready to record. I would pick a studio and then I would hire some of the best musicians in town just to record my demos. And I used Chris Stapleton on vocals and a lot of Tim McGraw's band. It was it was wonderful. And this was many, many years ago. So you knew Chris Stapleton quite a while before he knows who he is today, correct? I did, yeah. And I want to offer some perspective to people. Everyone is familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's concept that it takes 10,000 hours before you master an art. So... If you're writing songs six hours a day for many, many years, that is an opportunity to accumulate well more than the 10,000 hours accumulated. So just remind me, how long were you in Nashville and how long were you signed with Warner for? I was a signed writer with Warner for two years. I was in Nashville for quite a while before I got signed. And literally the week that my deal was up for renegotiation, my publisher decided to retire. And we had lunch and he said, I don't know how you can do this without going crazy. I mean, why can't you have another job and write songs on the side? And it literally was like Yoda giving me permission to not starve and just write songs all the time. Because as wonderful 
and as passionate as it is, it is like living on a roller coaster because, you know, I've had moments where my co-writer would take our song that we just finished over to Brooks and Dunn's manager and he grabs the CD and takes it right to the studio where they're performing or where they're recording their record because he thinks it's the greatest song he's ever heard. There's so many moments where it's, this song is going to be the career-breaking single, and then it ends up not being a single. And it's quite a roller coaster. And I was so grateful for my publisher to sort of give me permission to change lanes a little bit. And then the Berkeley job came up. And I thought, let me just, let me just see what I think about teaching. And that's when you moved up to Boston to teach at Berkeley. Yeah. Yeah. And so as you reflect back on the time, though, even though maybe not all the outcomes that you wanted came out of your writing years in Nashville, what did those five years, as we said, going back to the idea of the 10,000 hours did for you? I used to have a tap dancing teacher who said, it's not practice that makes perfect. It's perfect practice that makes perfect. So I was practicing the same skill level Pretty much. I mean, when you're in the room with another writer or you're in the room with a master writer, you are noticing their process, but you can't get in their head. So for me, when I came to Berkeley to teach is when my writing life exploded as far as what I could do because I had tools. And sometimes tools are only an increase in awareness right? Like if you have a song that you're a little bored by, you might just go, I don't know, I I don't really like it enough. But you, you don't know how to diagnose the problem because you don't have the tools. Like what could be the problem? What could make this more interesting? And so I felt like I was deepening the skills of someone who was an intuitive writer. And I felt like it wasn't making me a master writer because I needed tools. You spent a number of years teaching at Berkeley, and then actually you wrote a book. Yeah. What led you to write the book, and what is the goal of the book? Okay, honestly, what led me to write the book was I wanted a sabbatical, (laughs) and I needed a legitimate thing to do during my sabbatical. So I was granted the sabbatical, and then it was like, oh, holy God, what did I get myself into? But I really had fun in the learning process. You know, our brains love to learn. Our brains are happier when they're learning. And I really fell in love with sitting at a cafe with a cup of coffee and a laptop writing and and going down learning rabbit holes. And But my goal became, I would like for this to be something that could be used as curriculum. I would like for this to be something that anyone can learn from. So I want to get in with the knowledge and get out and maybe add a little humor to the writing so that it's really accessible because, you know, it's, it can be a little, it's not very sexy (laughs) to say, we are going to use some classical developmental techniques to alter and evolve your melody. It's much more fun to say, look what this song did and let's try it too. Or uh, as John Mayer would say, you know, your melody went up, up on this line. Let's invert that would sort of be the technical term. But, you know, all of your melodies are going up here in the chorus. What if now for contrast, you just have some of your melodies move down in direction? It's things like that where you can simplify it and make it accessible. So I ended up asking one question, what does Berkeley already have? What do I wish had been different when I came to Berkeley and had to read all of the curriculum? And what was it like for me as a songwriter to digest all of that? And three, what hasn't been talked about? Music of all the arts is probably the one that forces the creator to use both sides of the brain because there's the intuitive and emotional side of it. And then music is actually a very scientific art. Rhythm and harmony are all based on math. You know, there's great musicians who didn't know anything about theory. And then there's people who know a lot of theory and are great technical musicians who are not able to communicate emotions. And then there are people who are able, you know, who master the technical part and then get it to a point where you use it intuitively to create emotion, like some of the great jazz improvisers. What is it like to be in the point of being sort of the bridge between these two parts of the brain. Like, you know, you are 
as a teacher and as a writer of a book that teaches how to write songs, you're in that place where you need to take this very technical part and deliver it to somebody so that they'll be able to create emotion. What sort of what process did you follow to achieve your goals? Well, I tried to lead with intuition. You know, I wanted to speak to the intuition in the writer. So instead of me being a theory teacher, Dina, would you like for me to get my piano and just demonstrate a quick little thing? I want you to do that. Yeah, let me grab it. Hold on a sec. So we took a quick break so that Scarlett could get her piano and we could set all the right levels for the conversation. And we pick up again here as she starts with the examples. For example, in my classes, I might talk about how Adele writes a song. And, you know, someone might say, well, you know, did she mean to sing that note on purpose because it would feel this way? Or did she do this technique on purpose? And the answer to that is, well, some people are so in tune with how they feel emotionally and they would instinctively pick the notes that would represent how they're feeling. Just like in a conversation, if you said, how are you doing? And I said, I'm good. That tone of voice sort of betrayed me a little bit because I'm trying to set what my words are saying is, I'm good, but you don't really believe me because of the way that my inflection went, right? How are you? I'm good. Or I'm good, but right? There's a but that's about to happen. If I was really good and my vocal tone and my words were in sync and I was good, I would say, I'm good. And then everything's aligned. So when Adele is singing a song about longing or loss, she isn't singing a note that is counterintuitive to how she feels. She's picking the note that will help the audience feel or come as close to feeling what she's feeling. So she's very intuitive and very smart as far as being a musician goes. But when you take some people that are possibly a little disconnected from themselves because they're nervous or they're new at music and they're more cerebral about things, they're not really paying attention. They're not lost in their own emotion. They're not um, maybe using music to support the way that they're feeling. Let's say that we have a lyric and the lyric is, so this is love. And that's a very neutral phrase. If I say, so this is love, you don't know if love is good. You don't know if love went bad until I have a tone of voice to inform it, right? So if I go, so this is love or so this is love. So this is love, right? So my tone of voice is going to tell you, it's going to emotionally inform that very neutral line. So if we had a songwriter who wasn't emotionally connecting themselves to music yet, and let's say they just took a chord progression that they heard on the radio and they played something like this. So this is love. So this is love, so this is love. I might ask them, okay, how, how do you feel about love right now? What are you writing about? What is your experience? And if they said, all right, I met somebody on vacation in Greece. They were the love of my life. And we knew it was a week and we'd never see each other again. So I knew, <laughs> so I knew it was going to be very devastating and maybe bittersweet because it was great, right? So I would suggest a harmony more like this. So this is love. So this is love. So this is love. And, you know, I alter my melody a little bit, but you can hear in those, in those chord choices that that is supporting how I'm feeling. So for example, the way that I'm teaching, I have a chapter called The Emotional Life of Chords. And my whole book is how can we use music to support the way that we're feeling so that we can build empathy with our audience so we can be understood, they can understand us, and hopefully in the process, they can understand themselves better by the way that we are connecting with them emotionally through music. And so basically what you're saying is that in your 
in your chapter where you're talking about the emotional qualities of chords, you're setting down the rules of like, oh, a chord like, you know, this type of chords will get these emotions. They're definitely open to, I will say humbly, that the songwriter decide. And I offer, well, this is my experience. Like, <laughs> what is the saddest chord in the universe? Well, this is my experience, but you will decide. And then, then as you get a little more advanced, there will be a relationship between the melody and the harmony that will also have something to, you know, that'll have part of, that will add to the emotion as well. But when you think of just chords, for example, they have a lot to say. They have a narrative that they're offering as you listen to them go by. So you might even have somebody play you a chord progression and you might ask yourself, well, what does that feel like? What are those, what's the story that those chords are telling? And let me sing a melody on top of that. So that would be more of what top liners do. You know, they're listening to the groove of a track and the harmony, and then they're writing a melody on top of that. So Scarlett, for people who are not familiar with the industry terms, what is top line writing and how is it different from traditional songwriting? So top line writing really means writing a melody in response to music that you're hearing. So in the pop world, I think it really originated in Sweden, but in the pop world, you've got these wonderful musicians and track writers that are in a studio. And what I mean by track writing is that when you turn on the radio and you hear a great pop song and you hear drums and bass and piano and all of these sounds that maybe were invented that you can't really recognize, um, that's a track. And what a top liner would do is walk into a studio or have some tracks emailed to them and they would just hear the track and they would write a melody on the top of, over the top of it. So that's why it's called top line writing. It's the melody is going to be written on top of the track in response to the track. Yeah. And that's sort of like the most common way that pop music is written right now, right? Like there are these producers who create tracks, assemble them to artists, and then artists are writing songs on top of it. Yeah, it can be. And also, I mean, I think of top line writing as writing a melody in response to other s instruments that you're hearing. So if somebody sat down and played a great guitar idea with a chord progression, I would write a melody over that existing idea. In a sense, it's the same thing. It's just more instruments. At this point, Scarlett and I took another pause to get the piano out of the way and make ourselves more comfortable. And this is where the conversation picked up once we were all settled in. All right, Scarlett, so we've talked about your life as a songwriter in Nashville. You've talked about your life as an educator. And now, last but not least, let's talk about the other reason why I want you on the podcast, which is your podcast, What's in a Song. So how do you come up with the idea of the podcast? What is it? And most importantly, what's the goal of your podcast? So the goal of the podcast is to educate and inform and entertain, but I wanted to have my favorite songwriters and creatives on the show so that I could not just really hear about their backstory or, you know, be entertained with them playing a song, but I actually wanted to like shake their pockets of the change. You know, I wanted to find out like how they do what they do and really get in there so that when people listen to the podcast, even if they're not a songwriter, they just like music and songs. They can learn about songwriting and the people that are wanting to learn more. You know, I'm taking a deep dive to sort of ask that creative, like, wait a minute, can we break that down? Stop for a second. Telling me ex exactly what your fingers are doing on the fret on the guitar. Like, what is that position? Why did you choose that? I had one of my favorite my favorite songwriters, Gary Burr on the show, and he is a fabulous melody writer. And he's had endless hit songs as a writer. He's toured with Ringo Starr. And I said, Gary, instead of talking about how you write melodies or how you've written melodies, could I give you a lyric and have you write a melody with me right now and talk us through your thought process? So it's really a deep dive into process. I had Julia Cameron on from the artist, the author of The Artist's Way and, you know, just 
having a wonderful time talking to my favorite people, my favorite creatives and songwriters, and really leaving the listener with things they can use and try out in their writing or in their business. What was the process of starting the podcast? Like, you know, what made you decide to do it? And what were some of the, maybe the challenges in the beginning and some of the successes? Actually, I had been listening to a podcast and I was always amazed after I listened to an episode of what I learned from each episode. I thought that is so amazing and so generous. And that made me want to keep coming back to that podcast because I was really amazed at what I learned. When I got the idea to start a podcast, I just got really excited about it. And I think that when we think about doing something in life, if we're meant to do it, we should get a little bit excited. You know, I think when we get past a certain age, we're not usually going, I'm so excited. And I think we should have some of that at every age. And when I got the idea, when the idea came to me to start a podcast, I got really excited about it. And I thought, well, I have not been excited about anything in a really long time. I better follow this. And then, Dino, I think you sent me that book, Making Noise. Yes, the Eric Nozum book. Yeah. And I read it cover to cover. I underlined everything. And then you sent me a podcast on starting a podcast. So I really did prepare. And thank you, by the way. So I think that that other podcast I had listened to had really inspired what I was going to do going forward. And I really wanted it to be something that people would learn from. And so, you know, there's the technical, what do I record on? Editing was really a learning curve. But for the most part, I think once I prepared, which took several months, I was ready because I'm curious and I, I want to know what those writers are up to so I can learn. So if you think about all the episodes that you've released so far, from all the people you're told to like, what are like a, three things that you learned? One of the things that I learned was when Lori McKenna, who was on the show, she said she will write some lyrics on a computer, but for the most part, she wants to sit there with a huge notepad, like an artist notepad. And while she's coming up with ideas, she wants to just jot things down, maybe draw a little picture. That was really inspiring to me. I think we leave ourselves a little bit when it's all computer and the textile feeling of holding a pencil and maybe some colored pencil sort of taps into our young creative self that's more playful and that's such a great place to be as a writer. So after that episode, I wrote a song with your wife, Susan Catanio, and I had a big artist pad and some colored pencils and it was really, it re-inspired me. So I would say that was something that I learned. And some of the things are more what I relearn or think about and it re-inspires me because I think, well, if this multi-Grammy winning songwriter is doing that, I better... I better go back to that. And one of those would be sort of taking the pressure off when you're writing lyrics to write them immediately with the melody. So some of those hit writers would be, I'm just going to write nonsense right now and just feel the words in my mouth and get a rhythm and get a flow and then come back later and put words. So my syllables will be sort of placeholders like the Beatles did with yesterday. You know, the original lyric was scrambled eggs. Oh, how I love my scrambled eggs. <laughs> And it's such a great argument for, let's rewrite that, shall we? And then they got yesterday. So that's another thing, writing nonsense. And I would say, oh gosh, there's been so many things. Just the reminder of the power of the morning pages, I would say, Julia Cameron. You know, she does the morning pages where you just freestyle, write whatever is on your mind for three pages by hand. And it takes about 20 minutes and it will get rid of writer's block for everybody. I think it's really helpful for public speakers to do that because you really, you create a new neural pathway in your brain that bypasses the critic. And you really have this flow from what you think to what you say. And it really helps you. That helped me with my teaching. It helps me in my podcast. It's helping me right now in this interview to just think about what I'm saying and not how I'm being perceived or how... This is going to come off, although those thoughts come in a little bit. But I think that it's helped me in many ways, even beyond my writing, to do the morning pages. 
That is great. What I love about all these three tips that you gave us is that actually, of course, they apply to the people who are listening or interested in writing songs or being creative. But I think that to a certain effect, these are actually all practices that, you know, we can do in whatever it is that we create. Can I say one more thing about that, Dino, in response to what you just said? Yes. So absolutely. And when I was trying to figure out this woohoo thing that I was teaching, like just write three pages a day and you'll get rid of your writer's block. It didn't feel like I had any science to back that up. And here I was saying that to my students at Berkeley. But when I became friends with Daniel Leventon, who's a neuroscientist and the author of This Is Your Brain on Music, I was able to ask him if we were creating a new neural pathway in our brain from our thoughts to our page, bypassing the critic. And he said that is exactly what's happening in the brain. And he said that he does that the morning pages every morning. And he's a scientific writer. Yeah. And he just finished his fourth book, I believe. That's fabulous. So, and by the way, all these are fabulous and masters of their own craft. So Gary Burr, Laurie McKenna, Julia Cameron, Daniel Levison. These are fabulous podcast episodes that you can go and listen to and what's in a song. So I'm going to close this podcast. I'm going to skip a couple of my traditional questions. I'm just going to ask you a final question. I normally have a question that I call food for the body or food for the soul, where, where I ask people to choose either a food or something artistic to share with my audience. But I'm going to take advantage of the fact that I have a, a music expert and a music master. And so when you were growing up, who was a musician that really inspired you? I would have to say Bonnie Raitt. I just loved every texture of her voice. She has so many beautiful textures that she moves through. And all of her songs had so much heart. Whether she wrote them or didn't, many she didn't write. But I, yeah, I would say I, I was a huge fan of her. And especially her big song, I Can't Make You Love Me. I think it's one of the best songs I've ever heard. It gets me every time. It was written by Mike Reed and Alan Shamblin. And um, I think Bruce Hornsby played the piano part. It's a masterpiece. Thank you, Scarlett, for being a wonderful guest. Thank you so much for having me, Dino. Before we go through the credits, I want you to have a little flavor of Scarlett's podcast. So here's a little extract from the episode with Lori McKenna. If you're not familiar with Lori McKenna, she has won three Grammys for Best Country Song with the songs Crowded Table by the High Women, Humble and Kind by Tim McGraw, and Girl Crush by Little Big Town. Girl Crush was also nominated for Overall Song of the Year at the Grammys, as was the song Always Remember Us This Way from the movie A Star Is Born, on which Lori was a co-writer. Lori was also a songwriter of the year at the Country Music Awards in 2017. So, without any further ado, here are Scarlett and Lori. So you're mumbling. Are you mumble? Do you start with just... Uh, let's just get something going. Here's some mumbling. Or do you do you know what you're writing about? And then there's just certain lines that you're getting through with a mumble. Usually in co-writing, we'll start with a title. I feel like that that happens a lot. I love starting with a title, even if I'm alone, just to say like, oh, okay, we'll just keep this line in our head and just start playing with even by myself like I'll look at my you know my title list my terrible <laughs> my terrible title list but I will sometimes but sometimes you can just I can't even play the piano and sometimes you can just sit as you know and play a chord and the chord will tell you a word you know what I mean or two words or and then you go and fix it maybe but I feel like the mumbling is the mumbling's how I started, you know, when I was 12. That's what I would do is I would play, you know, my three chords that I knew how to play. And I would I would just blah, blah, blah over it. And I, I guess at some point when I got in rooms with other people, most people think this is, sounds crazy. But a lot of people do it that way. A lot of people need the mumbling. And we'll still do the, okay, we have these two lines, but we're going to do the, and this line rhymes with moon, you know, <laughs> to get us to the, to where we're going. So I feel like mumbling is really your friend, no matter how it starts. But in those early days, it was, it was a lot of, you know, just feeling the guitar and feeling the way 
that cord wanted to come out of my throat that day. And then you put on top of it what you're feeling and, and your, I don't know, your body surprises you. It knows sometimes better than your mind does. I can't, I'm not a good overthinker. When we get into overthinking land, I'm like, oh, let's back up. Let's go take a walk. <laughs> Do you feel like you sit down and find out what you have to say? Oh like my the, God. The, yeah. Do you feel that so, way? I mean, it, it's like, it's part of the, the blessing of it all, I feel like. Yeah. I mean, I think that if you're, you know, it's different, right? If you're writing with an artist and they're, they have like a thing going and they want to write a certain thing, that might be different. But when you're alone and you're just, you have the luxury of time and you can mm -hmm. sort of ask yourself what you need to say. You don't know yet. You don't know what you have to say until you see it or you hear it. And I'm, do, does the mumbling sort of end up sounding like words to you at some point? Do you hear little word bits in the mumbling? Yes, and I know we're back and forth between solo writing and co-writing, but the I think in yourself you can hear words or the word will pop out. You know, I think Fireflies, I think that I wrote that song really quickly, and I think it just kind of wrote itself. It kind of like popped out that way. I don't remember ever thinking, I'm going to write a song called Fireflies. It's going to be about this. I think that I was finding that melody and those that word came out and I was like that's a good focal point let's chase mm. the firefly down the road <laughs> and see where that wants to go but so many times in co-writing someone across from you will be mumbling and you'll say did you just say I got a heart rush like did you just yeah. say it? and they're like no I didn't say that I'm like I think that's what you said yeah. And then it's funny, it's that back and forth, like, oh, you're lying to me, you had the line, and you just, you know, it's like, no, I'm yeah. pretty sure it just came out of your face. I, I'm pretty sure it just, so it happens, yeah. it happens to ourselves, it happens in the room. I think that's the song, right? <laughs> so I think that's when um, we have to be careful of the sacred space we're in and not overthink and not commercialize just yet and not, we can do all those things later. But when that stuff's happening, when the magic stuff's happening, I think we have to, like, you know, that's when we really have to pay attention. I like that you said that's the song writing itself. Yeah. I mean, so many times, doesn't it? It's like we, and we can ignore it. We can ignore the song. Trying to, the song is a co-writer of the song. And many times I've been in rooms where we just ignored the song. We definitely mm -hmm. did. And that's because you get into other things where you're worried about, oh, would, is it okay to say this? Oh, would so-and-so say this? Oh, will right. the radio play this? That I try to stay far away from those things. Good. Okay. <laughs> I love that. I love that. All right. So one thing that I noticed about your writing, and I'm just because this is a learning podcast, I'm just going to be a nerd for a second. And... <laughs> Oh my, I can't believe I'm going to say this word to you, but you know, there's a literary device, anaphora, and it's a term for starting a series of clauses with the same words, right? So Churchill, you know, we shall fight in France. We shall fight on the, we shall fight with the growing confidence. It's a, it's just a, a device that is really good for, for emphasis and focus. And Diane Warren used that in Celine Dion's Because You Loved Me, for all the times you stood by me, for all the truth that you made me see, for all the joy you brought into my life, for all the wrong that you made right, for every dream, for all the love. So that's wonderful. That's a, a real technique that's used a lot um, in writing and in songwriting. But what I love about the way I've seen it show up in some of the songs we're going to talk about today with your writing is that, for example, the Diane Warren lyric, She's using all of these sort of emotional big concepts, like for all the times you stood by me, for all the truth you made me see. And those are more cliches, which is fine, you know, for it's it's a beautiful song. But you get down into like using that technique to really tell a story. And you go from sort of these, if I was going to say as a filmmaker, you've got your camera and uh, you've got your camera lens really wide and then you bring it in really small, and then you bring it really wide, and you bring it really small, almost like you're grabbing your audience by the shirt of their collar and going, come here. Okay, go back. Okay, come here. <laughs> and it's really awesome. And I want to just 
you know, I just want to tell you what you do. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure if I knew I was doing that. That's like, I'm, I do, I do have a thing about, I always think like, let's tell everybody what the room looks like. And then they can put themselves in there. You know, I love it when someone says, is this where we put the furniture? Like, yes, let's bring in, let's bring in, bring in the room. I do love that because I love songs like that. I think I probably do that because of the songs that I grew up with that did that. And it's, um, the in and out thing, I guess I would have thought that I was more of a, here's what the room looks like person. And I think if you paint a room, you can picture yourself sitting on the couch drinking a, a glass of wine or crying or whatever, or just staring off into space or whatever the song, you know, wants you to, that's why I'm so domestic. I think I just love those pictures, you know? Yeah. Well, so there's, so yes, you have a lot of furniture in your song, which is so wonderful because people can come in to your song and they can sit down and they know what they're sitting on and they know what they're drinking. <laughs> but I would take it a couple steps further and say that Lauren McKenna is an interior designer and a feng shui expert. <laughs> you know what? I originally did want to be an interior designer. Like back in the day, in high school, I was like, I'm going to go to New York and go to design school. I'm so glad that didn't work out. <laughs> did not work out. I'm so glad you listened to everyone around you. So let's get back to what you do that you don't think you're doing. Um <laughs> So, you know, there's sort of this internal language that we can use, and there's everyday nouns, and there's big, wide concepts, right? So, one of my favorite songs is written by Mike Reed and Alan Shamblin, I Can't Make You Love Me. Mm -hmm. And the first three lines are, turn down the lights, turn down the bed, turn down these voices inside my head. And sort of the order of those things is like the big, wide room with the lights, and then the very specific change of turn mm. down the bed. And then internally, the hardest thing is to turn down the voices inside my head. And when I look at your song, Salt, for example, and can I have your permission to, to play that song? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay. Let's listen to Salt. I paid for my room. I tried to forget it. It killed me. I knew the memory. I let it. Hearts don't fly, but they can run like hell when they have to. I didn't leave you a note, I didn't leave you a photo, I didn't leave you a chance, but I left you. I guess you know you're wondering now how long it take before I start missing you. introduce the song with, you know, I pay for my room and I try to forget it. It'll kill me. I knew the memory, if I let it, hearts don't fly, but they can run like hell when we have to. All right. So where you start to bring in anaphora, the next bit is you have, I didn't leave, I didn't leave, I didn't leave, I left. And so you're using that device, but you're not using it like Diane Warren did, where it's all big language. You're very specifically storytelling. So you have, I didn't leave a note. I didn't leave you a photo. I didn't leave you a chance. 
but I, but left, I you. left you. <laughs> so, but I left you. So that is really, it's so condensed and powerful. And you go from these very concrete nouns of note and photo to the abstract chance. And then I left you. So I just love how condensed and powerful that storytelling is in that in that section. And then sort of reverse that order with bigger words to smaller. So the camera lens is, but you ain't worth the time. You ain't worth the pain. Right down to you ain't worth the spit in my mouth when I scream out your name. And then big again, you ain't worth the life. They handed out in this small town. You ain't worth the sound of the TV from the room down the hall or my weight insult. It's just, I have goosebumps <laughs> just reading. <laughs> it reads so differently than it sings, right? And I think, of course, yeah. I think it just popped out in the trying to find what, what in the world to sing? What in the world to sing? And I didn't realize I was doing any of those things, but I think that I'll remind myself like, oh, so, I mean, the first line of the song is always kind of the most important, right? Like you have to get somebody right where you are. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating or a review. Remember to stay tuned because at the end of the credits, I will play a song by Susan Catania, one of Boston's best singer-songwriters. And spoiler alert, it will be a co-write with Scarlett. And speaking of Scarlett, one last time, check out her podcast, What's in a Song? As usual, I will have all the links that you need to find her on the page of this episode on the podcast website, al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. And make sure that you follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Look for the handle at AL4EDP with the letter D. On Facebook, you can look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Salvarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, as I promised, this is one of my favorite songs that Scarlett wrote with Susan. It's an incredibly powerful ballad called Whiskey Into Tears. Enjoy. I took a drink then it took me to the bottom of a bottle of chimney. It took my fear, it took my pain, it took my laughter and my hope. Yeah, it wanted everything as I bow my head over this glass. Let it be my last Turn this whiskey into tears Help unravel all the years I've wasted Freedom tasted That never fed my soul Turn this shadow into light Make this twisted spirit rise Somehow Take this heart and let it feel Turn this whiskey into tears I took a drink then it took me to a place where I could drown the memory. Clean escape, a 
heart that's safe But it couldn't fill the emptiness Or resurrect my dreams It's just a demon in a glass And it don't change the past Turn this whiskey into tears Help unravel all the years My soul turn this shadow into light. Make this twisted spirit right somehow. Take this heart and let it feed. Turn this whiskey into tea. Drink, then it took 